Welcome back to Practice Purchase Season 4, Episode 2. I'm joined again by Morgan Stump. Morgan and I are talking how to pick the right bank. Morgan, hello. Hi, Brian. Hey, um, so just as a reminder for folks, um, this is a, a good point. If you are this far in the seasons, you're listening along, uh, you'll notice there haven't been advertisements. There haven't been long extended, hey, Morgan, how's the weather in Portland type discussions there haven't been, um, you know, me plugging things. Uh, if, if you appreciate that and you like it, I'd ask you to do two things. Number one would be to leave a review. That really helps other folks find it. The second thing would just be to uh, hit that little forward button, send it over to a friend, colleague, post it on Facebook. I don't care. Let other people know about it. We're trying to do this as a service. Um, I'm not making any money doing this podcast. And, uh, you know, and Morgan's not either FYI, although Morgan, I should probably send you a gift card for dinner or something, but, uh, anyway, <laughs> thank you for joining. All right. So Morgan, you have worked at a big national lender. You're now with provide. Um, you probably know, I, I you know, you may not know a, a banker at every single dental lender in the country, but I'd bet, I'd bet you'd be hard pressed to find one where you don't know someone or have a personal friend or contact. So if anybody is qualified to talk about how to pick the right bank, it's you. Uh, and so I'm going to put you on the spot in this episode. I'm going to go through some of the questions we talked about in detail in season one. And, and then I'm going to ask, I'm going to say what I told people and they either have you agree or disagree and then say why and, and give more context. So people know from an insider what they should be asking, what they should be thinking about. Let's go. All right. So very first question, dental specific. Should a, should a lender be dental specific and national or local? And I tell people dental specific is a no brainer. I have a strong bias towards national because those just are the best rates and terms and, and offers that I see. But uh, what do you say? I would agree with you. Um, definitely on the first piece, uh, it should be dental specific. Uh, it's important to understand that the way that we underwrite these loans is pretty unique. It's all to cash flow and not based on collateral. So your average bank, your average banker, um, whether it is a regional bank, credit union, et cetera, they're not going to understand how to underwrite these loans and they're not going to be competitive. They're often going to have shorter terms. They're going to ask for down payments. They're going to have fees. Uh, doctors pay their bills even the in the most challenging of times. Uh, so dental specific lenders are going to be able to offer the best process, the best rate, the best terms and the best experience. Uh, so as far as the national goes, um, yes, I, I would say most of the time, correct, but there are some regional lenders out there as well that do a good job that have dental programs. Um, so I think that, you know, just ask the question and, and really rely on your team to help you understand, Hey, who is really doing these loans and who does a good job. So I'll, I'll put a plug in here. I'm going to ask a, a clarifying question here in a second, but, um, it might be kind of awkward to send Morgan an email. <laughs> hey, Morgan, I'm in the Southeast. Who should I call? Uh, but knowing you, you would probably answer the question honestly and, and with a smile. Um, but I'll just say, if you want to know a regional player, if you're in Texas, if you're in California, if you're up in the Northeast, wherever you are, Midwest, you want to know who to talk to in your region, I'm happy to, to provide that info. Um, but so, all right. So dental specific, no brainer. What, what about the people who kind of have that aversion to the big bang, the Wells Fargo's, the B of A's, the Chase, you know, they, they see the. I don't know, some of the headline scandals with maybe the investment banking group. They don't want to do business with one of these big national banks. What would you say to those folks? Yeah, I mean, it's important to, it's important to really kind of take a step back and, and look at the big picture there. I mean, you know, Wells Fargo's had their issues, B of A's had their issues. But at the end of the day, 
you're working with uh, a bank that has 30, 50, 40,000 employees, and it's all about who you're working with. Um, and a lot of the scandals and whatnot, are it's outside of those employees' hands. So I would not read too much into that if you've got an absolute you know, moral reason to not work with somebody. Um, then I would just lean on your team, lean on the Brian Hanks of the world to point you in the direction of a regional lender because there are some available. There are some great ones here in the Pacific Northwest that I compete against all day long, um, just like the other regions. So again, to your point, um, reach out to you and you'll get, get you'll give them those other options if they don't want to lean on a national bank um, or us. We are national as well. Uh, we are not a bank. We're a lender. We're a financial technology lender. Yeah. So uh, we do not have any of that history. So I would be happy to, to work with whoever uh, would like to work with somebody that comes from a little bit of that background. Yeah, that's a, that's fair. I love that. That's good. Um, good. OK, perfect. Morgan, conventional loans or SBA and what in the world do those two words mean? Absolutely. So conventional, I mean, if 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 the practice is cash flowing and if it's if it's a, a solid opportunity all the way around and checks a lot of boxes from a cash flow perspective, liquidity perspective, uh, revenue trends perspective, uh, conventional loans are are nine out of ten times going to provide you with the best rates and terms. SBA, uh, Small Business Administration, it's a government-backed loan. It means that the bank that writes those loans have half of the uh, half of the exposure, half of the loan insured by the government. So SBA definitely has its place. If you're buying a practice, for example, um, from uh, a seller that is, and actually I just referred over to the SBA earlier today. Uh, great doctor. He lost an associate a couple of uh, years ago, um, and he just made a, a, a basically a, a decision um, to not replace that associate. Uh, he refined the systems. He actually increased the cash flow. But if you look on paper, the practice has gone from 1.1 million down to about 700,000 over the last three years, Ouch. and that was you know such a such a decline that the underwriters at, at two banks now have not been able to get comfortable with it conventionally. And so I've referred him over to an SBA lender because the SBA is not going to be as concerned about those downward trends um, because they can be a little bit more aggressive. The conventional loans are, are, you know, the banks are going to be able to lend 100% of the acquisition typically, plus any sort of working capital funds that you need. Um, they're also going to give you, you know, 10-year fixed rates right now and the high twos, low threes with no fees. Uh, the SBA, on the other hand, they, if it's a practice acquisition, they are going to require a capital injection, a down payment, usually 10 to 15 percent. Uh, the rates are going to be on par conventionally, but then the SBA fee is typically going to be three to four percent. Hmm. Um, so if you stack them up side by side, apples to apples, um, if you can qualify for a conventional loan, that's going to be the best route for you to go. A lot faster, too, from what I've seen and clients yes, I've worked yeah. with the speed on a conventional. OK, good. All right. Um What's more important, the bank or the banker? And, and here's the background. So, in fact, uh, you referenced a story. I'll, I'll reference a story today. Um, client pings me on uh, Facebook Messenger from the Dental Nachos family. So, shout out to Paul Goodman. Um, you know, 10,000 dentists in there, and they're all talking about their experiences. Somebody mentions, I want to say in this time, I'm, I'll forget which bank it was. It was a big national bank. Somebody's whining about them, right? And, um, you know, and, and my first thought was, all right. One person had one bad experience with a bank that has 83 different bankers and lends billions of dollars every year. Um, you know, cool data point, but, you know, I, <laughs> I can find 
bad data points about your individual practice or one, you know, crown that maybe should have been a three surface instead, you know, I, anyway, um, so, so how does a dentist know, like, you know, we're talking banks, uh, but on my episode, I said, Hey, listen, banker is just as important, if not more so than the bank agree or disagree. I would agree. I, I think they're both very important. Um, you know, we already kind of touched on, on the first episode about how, you know, you need to get outside of just interest rate, understand which lender is going to support your practice growth after you are in there as an owner. And that doesn't come down to the banker. That comes down to their loan parameters and their underwriting guidelines. So asking the right questions up front to help you choose that proper bank is, is really important. But on the flip side, uh, the banker is crucial. Um, most of us, you know, myself included, I mean, I've been doing this for 10 plus years. I've seen a thousand plus transitions. I mean, this is what I do every single day. And, you know, who you're working with is 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 crucial. Are they responsive to you? You know, if, if you're a prospect or you're a, a, a potential client for them and they're slow to respond or they don't call you back, they don't respond to your emails quickly. You know, what kind of service level are you going to receive down the road once you are a client? Um, because borrowing money for the practice acquisition is not the last time that you're going to need to borrow money. You're going to expand in technology. You're going to buy your commercial real estate. You might want to buy or start up a second location. So really understanding who you're working with and how reliable they are, um, that's going to be just as important as, as choosing the right lender uh, from the get-go. What, why else is the banker, the individual banker at the bank important, right? Like, so if I called provide the 800 number on the website and I got whoever was next up on the, on the call sheet, like what's the big deal? Okay, so one's more responsive than another. I mean. So what? Is, is yeah, more well, I mean, I think it comes, it's like anything else in, in, in commerce. Um, it, you know, the, the company that you're working with is important, but oftentimes the person is going to really impact your experience more than anything else. And bankers, uh, unfortunately, um, oftentimes aren't busy enough. Um, they overpromise, they underdeliver. And, you know, bankers get reputations for that. So really lean on the team that you're surrounding yourself, like you, Brian, uh, dental CPAs, dental attorneys, uh, lean on those folks to tell you, you know, who should I talk to? Because you don't really want to play banker roulette, you know, and just kind of, you know, leave it up to chance of who you talk to. So um, I'll, I'll put some words in your mouth. The reputation comment makes me think, especially if there's a broker involved, someone who knows the industry a little bit. Uh, what I hear you saying is if a broker heard a specific name, they might be less likely to pick a specific buyer. That's very true, both on the bank and the banker. Yeah. And by the way, works the same way for brokers too. (laughs) (laughs) That's the truth. All right. So tell me a little bit about internally how the teams are made up. What I mean, so I call you, we we have a great conversation. Am I going to be talking to you throughout my entire loan process? How does this work? Not typically. And I think most of us lenders are aligned somewhat similarly. Um, So for myself, I'm the outside territory rep. Um, Everybody's got fancy names, but at the end of the day, that's what we are. And, you know, it's our job to travel during more normal times. Um, And we're out there, we're going to trade shows, we're meeting with centers of influence like, like you, like the dental attorneys and CPAs. And our job is to build relationships for them or with them so that they are comfortable referring their trusted clients to us. Um, so I'm usually kind of the face of, of the, lend, you know, we're the, the face of the lender that's out there in the community, really trying to build that business. But we've got a, a great team behind us. And I know that, you know, my partner, Diana and Ga very well, um, two longtime professionals that know the ins and outs of dental practices and the cash flow involved. So 
you're typically going to have that first conversation with me. Uh, and then I've got what I consider to be inside partners. They're more on the analytics side. Um, and so they're the ones that are going to be crunching the numbers. They're going to be working with both you, you, the doctor and the seller or the broker to gather that full financial package. And then once that deal is approved and you've chosen the lender as who you're going to move forward with, uh, then we bring on a closing officer. So theoretically, on every single opportunity, uh, your buyers are going to be really interfacing with three people. The first person they're introduced to, and then their inside partner, and then their closing partner. Okay. No, that's, super, that's super helpful. Cool. All right. And then um, the process internally to actually make a decision on the loan. So I talked to you. I talked to the inside partner. You mentioned on the last episode, um, you know, there's submitting of documents. You're asking for tax returns and things like that. Uh, walk me through how that process looks internally. Sure. Okay. So you've got some documents. Now what happens? So we've got some documents. So we're, we're going to, we're going to look at the deal. We're going to, we're going to look at the, the global 30,000 foot view. We're going to look at the buyer's production capability. We're going to look at their personal financial statement to see what their liquidity and their debt to income ratios are. Um, but we're also going to be crunching the numbers of cash flow, And we need to make sure that the practice we need to make sure that the practice that they are acquiring is going to be able to allow them to provide for both them and their family. Um, you know, we don't want to put somebody in a situation where they're barely treading water. Uh, we don't want to put somebody in a situation where they're not able to put money away for their future. So we're going to look at, you know, it's really like a, a two-sided equation. On one side of that equation, you've got the buyer and everything that goes into that buyer. And on the other side is the practice and the target practice that they're looking to acquire. And we just need to make sure that they line up. And so once we have enough information and, you know, it can really be just a uh, year in profit and loss statement or one year of tax returns. If as long as we've got that, we can do kind of a quick and dirty cash flow to really understand if we're at least in the realm of really the right fit size practice. So Let me if pause we are and it's yeah. a green light and everybody's moving forward, uh, that full package is collected and then we submit to the credit team. Okay. Uh, the credit team does their own review. They look at the write-up that the sales team put together, but ultimately they're spreading that loan themselves. Uh, they're running their own cash flow calculations because the underwriter is truly the expert. And then um, some banks do this, some lenders do it, some don't. Um, oftentimes, like we do it, I know that Bank of America does it, um, where they will actually have a credit interview with the client, where the underwriter is speaking for 20, 30 minutes with the uh, with the doctor, the buyer themselves. And so I guess I kind of missed that step on the previous question when I said that you're going to be interfacing with three people. Mm -hmm. um, you'll be actually interfacing with four with some lenders because you'll have that credit interview. And that's just to really to make sure that the bank and the lender uh, has a full understanding of everything that's going on in that opportunity. And it's also a chance for the buyer to ask any questions of a real live underwriter, um, you know, the person ultimately making that decision, to ask them any questions that they might have about the cash flow um, or any sort of concerns that they might have. Um, so it's a really collaborative effort. Let me, let me, uh, so I'm going to repeat back some of the highlights there. So it's a two sided equation there's the buyer and the practice. You've got um, uh, the sales team is running the numbers, and then the underwriter is also running the numbers separately. And then the sale, but the sales team is kind of, you know, internally kicking over the deal. I, I imagine you've got like a, a folder or, so, you know, some kind of system or something that the underwriters get everything. So uh, I've told buyer, uh, confirm this for me. I've told uh, other buyers it's 60 40, 60% practice, 40% buyers. And I know that's not a hard and fast rule, but is that close? Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. Um, 
you know, it's important to, to just think about it like this. Um, you might have the same target practice, you know, let's say it's collecting a million bucks and then you can give me 10 buyers and, you know, all of those buyers have excellent credit scores, but then based on their liquidity levels, production capability, et cetera, you know, I'd say, you know, half of them might get approved for that practice. And it's mm-hmm. so, so the five declines are no fault of the practices. It just wasn't a good fit for the potential buyer. So, you know, I was actually having a conversation with a broker yesterday and, and she's now had, I think, three different buyers look at this practice and it's a very small practice. And she just said, you know, is this thing just a dud? Am I ever going to find anybody that's going to be approved for it? And I said, it's not a dud. It's just a small practice that's doing 350000 a year. Yeah. So you just either need to find a buyer that is extremely lean from a personal debt situation, or you need to find a doctor that maybe wants to buy a second practice or buy the charts and roll it into their existing practice. Um, because if you do that, then we have an existing practice that we can utilize in our cash flow. So the small nature of that practice isn't necessarily going to be a deal breaker. When you guys run the numbers, are you sending a report back to the buyer? Are they seeing what you guys put together? We do. And I, I think, you know, I think that's what my team does a wonderful job of both Diane and Gaw. Um, they do it. They try to make it as simplified as possible. We're not sending out a big spreadsheet with a ton of numbers that's confusing. We're actually giving you a, from the top down. OK, here's all the income that's coming into the practice. Here's all the expenses. Here's all your personal expenses. And at the end of the day, here's how much is left over. Uh, and this is why we're short of where we need to get to, or this is why the loan works. And this is how much income you can anticipate to earn once you're installed there as the owner. Interesting. Yeah. I'll, I'd like to see one of those. Sounds like the report I put together. It's like, Hey, should you buy this practice? Yes or no. If yes, how much is it worth? And then if it's worth that much, how much money are you going to make? Although you're not necessarily doing a valuation for the buyer, correct? Correct. Yeah. It's a slippery slope for lenders. We can't, and that's a question that we get asked all the time. What do you think about this? Is this overpriced, underpriced? And, you know, yeah. we, we can't get into that. We get into whether or not it's going to cash flow for you. And you really need to lean on you and your team uh, on the negotiation side of things to determine that. Morgan, one of the big differentiating factors between banks is the ability to lend on real estate. Okay. So we've been talking about the practice this whole time. The real estate is a separate transaction, the building. What should, what, 60 seconds, what should buyers know about real estate differentiating between banks? Yeah. So, I mean, in my opinion, it should be the goal of every practice owner to own the commercial real estate that their practice uh, practices out of. Uh, you set that commercial real estate up into an LLC holding company. You now have your operating entity uh, paying yourself rent and that becomes a tax write-off. So more money is going to make it to the bottom line. Oftentimes, though, the seller owns the building and holding on to that asset and then charging their new buyer a lease is kind of part of their uh, kind of part of their transition plan to continue earning passive income after they sell the practice. So my advice is, you know, if you are buying a practice from a seller that owns both the practice and the commercial real estate, if they're not willing to sell that commercial real estate, you know, at the time of the sale, uh, make sure that you have the first right to purchase built into any lease so that they can't go out and sell it from out from under you. And then all of a sudden you're dealing with a new landlord that might be trying to get a new tenant in there. Um, so understanding which lender is going to be comfortable financing a building for you, you know, in the next six months or a year or two years, once that building does come available, that goes back to asking the right questions when you're choosing your lender. So uh, every lender won't necessarily lend to buy the real estate? No. So all most of the lenders will finance the commercial real estate along with the practice uh, up front when you do them both at the same time. Uh, but a very, pro- like, for example, a very prominent national lender, 
Um, if you do not close on that building at the same time as the practice, they're going to want to see at least one to two years of file tax returns before they make that other investment in the building for you. They want to make sure that that original investment of the practice is actually paying off and that the transition's gone well and that you've actually filed a couple of years of tax returns before they finance it for you. So I've actually had a lot of doctors that chose this other bank. And then a year later, they're circling back to say, hey, can you do a, a one-off building for me? I still have my practice loan with this bank, um, but I want to buy the building now. And unfortunately, lenders are not going to be comfortable just financing a building in most cases if they don't also have the uh, operating entity, the practice, which is creating the revenue, um, you know, under a lean position, which would come with uh, financing the practice. So it's kind of all or nothing. So that's why it's so important to ask the right questions up front. Just to ask, okay, so if you're talking to a bank and you're looking at the real estate, ask if the bank can do the real estate now and ask if they can do it in six to 12 to 18 months. Yes, but don't necessarily rely on the bank banker to be truthful for you in that situation. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, that's why it's important to surround yourself with a team that has done this before, because these are things that you, Brian, you understand. And so yeah, right. you're going to be able to, to let them know, because like I said, too many bankers aren't busy enough. They'll tell you what you want to hear on the front end. And then you get in there, they've got you locked down in a five-year prepayment penalty. And now the story is not the same. Morgan's super helpful. People know some of the inside uh, scoop on how to pick a bank. Our, our next episode, we're getting into the math. So you and I have some homework to tee this up really well. I'm really excited to get there. We'll talk to you in, in episode three. Sounds great, Brian. Thank you.